0: Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you're listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel in the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you'd love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btofer at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Justin Beal to talk about his book, Sand Future. Justin is an artist and a writer living in New York City. Justin, thank you very much for being here and talking with me today. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Brian. I'm delighted to be here all mine. Pleasure's all mine. So before we begin, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure.
1: Uh, I'm an artist based in New York. Uh, The book we're discussing today, Sand Future, is my first book. I've spent most of my career uh, as a visual artist making things, usually three-dimensional things, but not exclusively, and exhibiting them within the context of the art world. Uh, I have a background in architecture, which is to say I have a undergraduate degree in architecture and design. But I never really intended to, to become a practicing architect. I worked briefly early on for some architects and also for some artists, as an architect making fabrication drawings and things like that. But always with the intention of working as a sculptor, which I did for about a decade, until I started working on this book around 2015, 2016. Uh, And this book project really grew naturally out of what I was working on in the studio. I didn't begin it with the intention of writing a book, uh, but it sort of took on a momentum of its own. And it became clear to me that the sort of fully realized form of the project that I was working on in this case was a book, uh, which, which is what brings us here today.
0: Great, and so your background is uh, is unique, and so it probably leads into where my first question is going to be. So, of course, some of our listeners probably haven't read yet, but I've probably never asked any of my guests this before. But your book has a very unique structure. I, you know, of course, I won't give it all away. I'd like to hear you talk about it, but you know, it's kind of split up between talking about Yamasaki's life and also talking about your own life. And so, I guess the first question I have is, you know, what brought about this structure? You know, what's the relevance to the subject? Sure, of
1: course. Um, Right, as you mentioned, the life and and career of Minoru Yamasaki is is sort of the core of the book, but it actually began as a project writing about sick building syndrome, uh, which was something I was writing, I was researching on at the time, and that indirectly kind of led me to Yamasaki's story. And I'd been aware of his work since I was younger and always been very interested in it, but the more I started working on researching him, the clearer it became to me that that was really where the core of the project resided. But there were all these other things I wanted to, to bring into the story. Uh, I didn't want to write a biography of, of Yama. I'm not a biographer. I didn't want to write a kind of an academic treatment because I'm not really an academic. Uh, so I wanted to try writing a book in the way that only I. I would write it. And that's sort of where the this complicated structure began as I was trying to kind of hold these different pieces together. And actually the, the actual act of writing in my case took place in a studio that was built for sculptures, right? So in this big room and that was, you know, I had lots of space, more space than most writers have. And I'm also a person who thinks very visually. So I started pinning ideas up on the wall. And I think that some of the complexity of the structure actually comes from that physical wall, moving ideas around and figuring out how different things could fit together. And um, early on, when I when it became clear to me that there was a book here, I started talking to people about how it might manifest. And I was getting advice from a lot of people in the publishing world that it might be a collection of essays, uh, on different topics, but I had this like very strong intuitive sense that it wasn't that, that it didn't want to be a group of disparate essays. that instead it wanted to kind of pull all together. And I think part of that came from some insecurity of, on my own as a writer, just thinking like, I'm not going to write a biography as well as a biographer. I'm not going to write an academic architecture book as well as an architecture PhD. So why not write it the way that I can write it? Uh, and that part of that is just spending time with the buildings, looking at them as objects, as three-dimensional phenomena, but also part of that was bringing a little bit more of myself into it, which I was first reluctant to do, but over time came. I came to appreciate that that was sort of what would make the book unique. So um, yeah, as you mentioned, you spend about half of the time with Yamasaki and then the other half of the time you're kind of in a more contemporary place with me or on, on one of several kind of digressions that happens within the structure of the book.
0: And so I guess, we'll, of course, we'll have to tackle both sides. But maybe right now, I'd like to start with Yamasaki. So I can't speak for everyone, but I think I can speak for most. I know I personally, and I think many others, if you were to ask them about Yamasaki, they probably couldn't tell you. But then if you were to list five of his most famous buildings, everyone would be very familiar with it. And so my first question is, you know, what I guess what yeah, you kind of mentioned the structure of the book, you know, what made you pick Yamasaki? Is it his buildings? You know, what was it that drew you to him? Sure. Uh, that, that's a good question.
1: I, well, one of the first buildings I was conscious of as architecture as a child, as I mentioned in, early on in the book, was the Eastern Airlines terminal at Logan Airport, which was this amazing building and, and really stuck out. You know, Boston can be a pretty conservative town and there are only a handful of sort of aggressively modern buildings. And they were quite striking to me. Uh, I, I, you know, at that point, I was not really aware of certainly not aware of Yamasaki or architecture in general. But, um, then I, my second kind of major interaction was the summer that I graduated from college. Uh, it was the summer of 2001 and in August of 2001, I moved into an apartment that was about two two blocks South of the world trade center on Greenwich street. And I, and I became really fascinated with these two buildings and, fascinated by the fact that I didn't know who designed them. And I had just graduated from, you know, a pretty prestigious undergraduate architecture program and taken several years of architecture history. And I just assumed that it was a Skidmore Owens and Merrill building or something like that. And so it was during those few weeks that I learned a bit more about Yamasaki. And then when I started working on this book and I learned more about his story it just became more and more astonishing to me that he wasn't a more central figure in my education or your education or uh most most architects education and, and i you know i can tell you from experience over the last five years that, that you know there are many many practicing architects who live in new york city who have no idea who the architect who designed the world trade center is which is when you think about it is pretty remarkable um and so the, his obscurity became a real source of intrigue for me, uh, and you know, it, it is an important part of the book.
0: Absolutely, and so for those listening, you know, we keep hinting at his famous buildings. Obviously, the World Trade Center, but he was also behind many big projects. But I think the one that any first-year architecture student can tell you about the pruitt Igo housing buildings. Yeah, and of course. Th- and that leads me to kind of my next question. This is not at all meant as a, you know, insult to Yamasaki. I'm actually a big fan of most of his work now that I know who he is, but it does seem like every one of his high profile projects seems to be a bit more controversial than maybe some other architects. Almost every example you provide, there's quite a bit of vocal outcry with even the world trade center, which we all kind of remember fondly now, but I think a good point you make is at the time, not not as many people were on board with them when they were being built. That's, I think that's absolutely true. Um, I mean, there
1: are a couple of things at play there. I think that, you know, some of the best architects offend people the most deeply. Um, Paul Rudolph comes to mind immediately, uh, who's like who I think is genius. But, um, you know, the other thing is that there there is this uh, undeniably tragic aspect to Yamasaki's story. And part of that tragedy wow. is the fact that not only did he have uh, two projects, Pruitt-Igoe and the World Trade Center, that were... Um, for lack of a more delicate way of putting it, were blown up on television, you know, with with millions of people watching. They also were two projects that of which he was the least proud or among the projects of which he was the least proud. They were projects that went awry uh, during the design process and in ways that were complicated for him. And so, you know, the, the fact that when he is remembered, he's remembered for these two projects, um, I think it's not entirely fair to his legacy because there are many buildings of his that are quite beloved, especially in Detroit, but also, um, in Los Angeles in Princeton, yeah, you know, all over the place. So, uh, and, and one other thing that I think is really important is that, you know, he was wh- whatever you say about him, he was an unbelievably prolific architect. Um, he built all over the place and with great critical acclaim and as As I mentioned in the book, and as you know, he was on the cover of time magazine in 1963, which is not a place very many architects have ever ended up. And the list is all people that are household names, Frank Lloyd Wright, Saarinen, Buckminster Fuller. So there is a dimension to his story of this kind of incredible rise to, to fame and notoriety, and then this sort of fall into obscurity. Um, and I think that's part of what makes him such an interesting character to write about. I,
0: I agree. And I think another thing worth noting for anyone who hasn't had the chance to look him up yet, you know, all of his buildings, you know, are big accomplishments I know of. But but I think the thing that I didn't take into account until you started listing specific dates is at the, at the height of his popularity was, you know, he was Japanese. And it was a time when I think you said over 120,000 Japanese citizens were literally removed due to an anti-Asian hostility.
1: Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, that, that, that's another huge part of of the, of the story, which is that Yamasaki himself was an American citizen. He was born in Seattle. His parents were not American citizens. And so he moved to New York eh, during the depression, worked eventually for Shreve Lim and Harman, who were the architects who designed the Empire State Building. And then uh, he also met his wife, in in new york during that time to ruko who went by terry and they got married on the friday night before pearl harbor and so they you know got married danced all night and woke up two mornings later and the ground sort of shifted under their feet in a fundamental way and i think just imagining what it would be like the next the, the sort of weeks that followed from that uh are kind of unimaginably complicated. Uh, you know, Shreve Srivilemon Harman had work because they shifted over to military production. Yamasaki was continued to be employed because he was such a proficient manager. So he ended up managing the construction of a naval base in upstate New York uh, while also trying to orchestrate getting his parents out of Seattle. So they wouldn't be sent to an internment camp. And so suddenly, you know, he's got, he's living in a, in a small apartment with his brother on the upper east side and his wife moves in his parents move in he's working for the government that has just interned hundreds of thousands of japanese americans on the west coast you know it, it, there there was incredible complexity and adversity to the circumstances in which he was working
0: absolutely uh, i don't mean that it, but it is also worth noting i it's a very tragic anecdote you present in the book, but, uh, more than once he was actually refused entry onto the base he was designing and working on. Correct. And, uh, you yeah. know, and then,
1: and then these things kind of occur throughout his career. Uh, when he first moved to Detroit, he, he, he and Terry were not able to buy a house in the more affluent suburbs of Detroit. And then of course, later in his career, when, Uh, there was a sort of resurgence of anti-Japanese hostility in Detroit as the Japanese auto industry started to infiltrate uh, Detroit after the fuel crisis in the seventies. So it was this sort of legacy that, that followed him throughout his career. And, uh, you know, as you know, um, architecture is not the most diverse field. It's getting better, but it's historically um, hasn't been. And so I think there was, you know, there was a, a sort of constant, Um, uh, there was a sort of a wall he was trying to to break through throughout his career to be accepted. And, and, uh, you know, given that adversity, the fact that he was prolific as as he was is even more remarkable.
0: Absolutely. And so you had mentioned architecture not being a diverse field. I don't think that's a secret to anyone. You had mentioned there's improvement, but, you know, sadly it's very minimal and that's for another day we could talk about that but uh, you know you had mentioned his wife and so i know he in the book it talks about the fact that he was divorced i believe 3 times so he kind of lives up to that architectural stigma sadly of all architects being divorced because they love their career so much and so i do want to shift to the other side of the story i don't want you know of course we're going to talk about yamasaki but you had you had mentioned and i, I it was very interesting to me that's why i'm asking about That at one point in your life, you didn't really identify as an artist. You found it much easier to lean into being an architect. And I'd love to hear more about, you know, you bring up the Hollywood archetype and I, you know, the fact that there is no stigma stronger than what an architect is. I know from personal experience, whenever I even mention I'm an architect, everyone instantly thinks they know everything about me. So I want to hear more about that, not being an artist, but calling yourself an architect. Sure, sure. Um, That's really
1: one of the most personal parts of the book, but I I think I've always been very fascinated by this archetype uh, of the architect and how narrowly it's defined, Uh, you know, and and, as, as, as you mentioned, there are all these characters uh, like Halford Solness and the master builder, Howard Rourke and the Fountainhead that sort of define this archetype. But yeah, what it meant for me personally was, you know, I also entered the art world in, um, the early two thousands at a time where there was a lot of interest in kind of collaborative projects between artists and designers, uh, and it, it was just a time when the the art world was sort of interested in what was happening in the design world, and that sort of made it it gave me a certain avenue in which I could do both or think about both simultaneously, which was really productive for me and interesting. No, 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 no. I think it's a good question. I just, I just needed to pause for a beat there. Yeah. There was, there was a lot of work happening at that time that was uh, in the art world. That was really looking towards the architecture world and the design world for models of um, not only just how to make objects, but how to structure a studio, how to structure a practice. And, and so I found the specific Avenue in that moment that kind of allowed me to feel as though I was having one foot in both worlds, which I was really interested in. There were a lot of artists working at the time, uh, making artwork that really could have been considered architecture or design. Um, But uh, yeah, and it was just a fun time for me uh, because it kind of combined these two interests.
0: And so again, now kind of a question I had tying into kind of both sides of the story. So... You, you you go to a lot of length talking about. I always get this 430, 432 Park Avenue. You know, again, famous building, big, tall, slender skyscraper. And again, I'll pre- pretend like I didn't read the book, but uh, it, it's very clear that you intentionally talk about Park Ave so much, even though you know that's not a building from Yamasaki. I was wondering if you could elaborate for us a little bit the relevance of that in the book. That almost happened by accident. Uh, you know, the
1: the truth is that it, the four thirty two Park Avenue, which is a building designed by. Rafael Vignoli uh, that was briefly the tallest building in New York city was being built. The, the mo- most of the, most of the part of the book, when you're with me, the, the character that resembles me, I should say, uh, takes place between 2012 and 2017, which is when this building was being built and when it opened. So I kept watching it as I was writing and it kind of became almost a marker of time as time was progressing within the book, but I also became interested in this idea of what it means to be the tallest building in New York and what that, and thinking of that as a kind of index of where power resides in the city. And I, and I described this in the book, but if you think back historically, right, there was a time when, you know, New York was just a seasonal hunting ground and the tallest structures on that hunting ground would have been temporary shelters built by the Lenape. Then the Dutch move in and they build a fort, which becomes the tallest structure on the island to defend uh, militaristically. So it sort of suggests this kind of military power. Uh, As the city gets more settled, churches, Trinity and collegiate become the tallest structures on the island, which suggests a sort of religious institutional power. Then as we all know, those are, those are surpassed in the, early 1900s by the first big skyscrapers in New York, Woolworth, Woolworth Singer, that, that had become these sort of symbols of, of corporate power um, leading up through the Chrysler Building and then, of course, the Empire State Building, which remained the tallest for almost 40 years. And then the World Trade Center comes in and it means it, it, it signifies something else. It's the product of the Port Authority and it, which a, a kind of shady collaboration between government and uh, the private sector and that, that those two become the two tallest buildings in the world. And then 432 was suddenly there rising to me over the city. And it occurred to me that it meant something different. It symbolized the sort of private wealth and the power of private wealth as capable of generating the tallest structures in the city of which now there, there are now several. And so it was, it was an intriguing parallel for me In that way, Um, there there are other things. They're also both very tall buildings on a square plan that go straight up. Uh, They have some sort of formal similarities, but it became a way of marking the progress of time in the kind of contemporary setting of the book
0: and, and sort of a parallel of a sort to the World Trade Center towers. Interesting. So I want to come back to the the shady deal you hinted at. I, I actually want to come to that. But you mentioned the idea of heightened power. And so, you know, another so – we've, we've talked about kind of the Trade Center and 9-11, of course. But another significant New York event you talk about was, of course, the flooding from Sandy. And you, I, I believe – I'm going to paraphrase a quote from you to, somewhat is that, uh, you know, the flooding in the lower parts of New York City was a reminder – of how the wealth is distributed. You know, the water level showed who was in the poorer parts and who was in the wealthier parts. And so the question I have is, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, you tell me the question. So the question I have is, so, you know, so clearly, if I'm understanding correctly, the case is kind of being made and I don't mean to speak for you, that nothing's really changed in terms of using height to signify power and wealth.
1: Right. I mean, I'm, I I absolutely agree with that. Uh, although I think that sort of, there the, there is both the sort of height of a building and then there's this kind of relationship to the water table <laughs> the, the, to sea level and and you know I think that originally became a priority in New York because of disease because of illness of cholera outbreaks and tuberculosis outbreaks it was healthier to be on higher land but now as we enter this kind of era of heightened climate awareness there's also this issue of flooding and of um sea level rise and so suddenly there's a second incentive to be on higher land which i think is interesting um and so you know in the case of 432 you're talking about the tallest building in the city that also happens to be built on one of the tallest elevations so you kind of get to double that uh which was not true of the World Trade Center, which was built on very low, swampy land. But yeah, so I think that, that there, there is definitely um, a historical precedent for that. Um, and then, as you said before, the Sandy, the events of Sandy in particular were a very powerful reminder of that, but also a very personal one for me, because my wife uh, owned art gallery at the time that got flooded. And so, that yeah, that <clears throat> it's also relevant to that part of the story.
0: Absolutely. And I don't, I don't mean to gloss over that. I'd love to come back to it, but I do think one thing I I definitely wanted to talk about, and I'm glad you gave me a segue for it. When you mentioned the the shady deal that went down. So, you know, again, a common theme seems to be that not just Yamasaki's buildings are interesting, but the time that they're being done is interesting. You know, not just because he was Asian American in a time when that was tough, but this is also, you know, one of these buildings actually occurred between the transition of power from Robert Moses, who I think many people are familiar with, and Mayor Lindsay. And I know that's often seen as kind of the removal of uh, corruption with Lindsay. But I, again, I don't mean to speak for it. It does seem like there was still some backhanded deals going on.
1: Yeah, sure. Um I mean, there are several things about the timing of construction of the World Trade Center that are interesting in, in part because they took a decade to build. So there was a lot of time, but, um, right. So f- first of all, the, the, the trade center was built by the port authority, but, um, it was largely the kind of brainchild of, of David Rockefeller, uh, who was the president of Chase at the time. And so it was it, when I speak of kind of private sector, public sector collaboration. That's what I'm referring to. Although the Port Authority is not really strictly speaking a public agency, it's a um, it's a an authority that is, is sort of a, a private vehicle for doing public projects, much like Moses's Tribal Bridge Authority. So there were all kinds of deals being made in New York and in Albany, uh, to facilitate the construction of this massive project, which was not entirely necessary at the time. Uh, you know, the original motivation for it was that the Rockefellers and chase owned a lot of downtown property and a lot of businesses were moving up to midtown to buildings like the empire state building, the Chrysler building. And they wanted to do something to draw people back downtown. So that was sort of step one. Uh, and then another step, well, let me get to Lindsay too, because yes, as you mentioned, when Lindsay is elected governor, he, it, Wagner who had preceded him had made a bunch of deals with the port authority to um, cut the taxes they would have to pay on the property that they were building on. And Lindsay really objected to that idea because it meant that they would be paying something like 5% of what a private, a normal developer would be paying in taxes. And he realized he didn't have a lot of leverage uh, to stop the project at that point. But what he did recognize was that the city still controlled the street closure permits all around the site. So the site was sort of an island within these streets that Manhattan controlled. And therefore, Lindsay could refuse to give them permits to bring material on site. And so that became the kind of final bargaining chip which was ultimately settled by an agreement between Lindsay and Guy Tazzoli, who was one of the uh, deputies at the Port Authority, to use the land that was excavated to build the World Trade Center as landfill to create what is now Battery Park City and give that to the city as kind of made land in lieu of paying taxes. Um, so that's how that, that story ended up resolving itself. But the other thing, just on the subject of timing, sorry for the long answer, is that, you know, it took 10 years. You know, the, the project began in the mid-60s and ended in the mid-70s. And, you know, it's it's astonishing if you think how much this country changed during that time. It's, you know, almost the entire span of the Vietnam War. So there was the public reception. There was a great deal of enthusiasm for the project early on, and, and then that really soured over time. And so I think that, that that's an important part of it. Right, as opposed to the Empire State Building which was born which was built in barely a year. This took almost ten years. So I think that's also important.
0: Absolutely. You know, a very common theme, you will know, same with Pruitt Igo. I was never aware of this, but Pruitt Igo was seen as this revolutionary building, and then what did you say? It's like fourteen years later, it's now the accepted case study of, you know, failed housing.
1: No, I think you're
0: absolutely right.
1: I mean, when it was when it was finished in nineteen 19- I, you know, I believe it was in 1951, it was, you know, it was considered the best high rise of the year, this incredibly modern solution to um, urban density. And then a lot of factors that were impossible to anticipate and outside of the control of the architects, uh, you know, basically made it impossible for it to succeed. And a lot of the cuts that happened during the construction process and the design process, also made it difficult for it to succeed, and and, and it sort of spiraled out of control and, and became the example of, um, as you said, sort of a poster study of a, of a failed experiment.
0: You know, and the question I have, not to put you on the spot, it does seem like, at least we you know from since I've been a student, there does seem to be two camps, even though both are a little extreme. There is the one side who believes that it's a failed architectural project and there is the side that's makes the claim that between value engineering and poor planning, it's not the building itself. It was just the fact that nobody's, everyone stopped maintaining it. And I've hinted at my bias already just with that question. But, you know, I guess the question I have is, you know, are you comfortable telling us which camp you fall in? Sure. Um,
1: I mean, I think, you know, and. On- This doesn't make for the best radio, but I think that it's a combination of the two. You know, I think that there is a um, it's it's a perfect example of how complex architecture projects once they enter the world, how how many different levels are affecting the success or failure of a project. Right. So, you know, essentially you have this model that was very successful in New York, which had a very different density than St. Louis and you move it to St. Louis, you have an architect, in this case, it was primarily Yamasaki, although he was working with some other people on it, try to solve the problem, and then you kind of value engineer out a lot of that solution. So the design was compromised from the beginning. But then I think what really set St. Louis, I mean, set I go down the path that it followed was what was happening in St. Louis more broadly. And that, you know, that involves massively important changes in american life right from the sort of ebbing of the great migration to the brown versus board of education decision so you have these two buildings that were essentially segregated that then become integrated but they don't really become integrated because white flight takes most of the white residents out to the suburbs and what's so compelling about Pruitt-Igo is you have all these different political and cultural realities that are kind of conspiring to doom this one building and, um, were there architectural flaws, design flaws? Absolutely. But there were also sort of systemic failures at the level of government at, at the level of culture and sort of even the court system that made failure inevitable. And in, in, in ways, you know, we're still feeling the repercussions of that. And that's one of the things I think that's so fascinating about Prudigo is that still, you know, even when the buildings were finally demolished, In the early 70s, the St. Louis Housing Authority gave vouchers to some of the poorest people who had been displaced by the demolition to go live in buildings that were underpopulated in Ferguson, right? So that there is this kind of like, even a link to very contemporary events in this history of this building that was destroyed 40 years ago.
0: Right. And you know it uh, you admit I, I, so I guess not to being subtle, I, I agree i I don't think it's fair to blame the building. I think there's a lot of I think the big one, as it was stated is you know they didn't have money, so no one dealt with the building anymore so i this is a quote from you know Yamasaki's associate, and while it's not the the fanciest word, I think it does speak to the need for diversity when a bunch and again now I'm quoting, when middle class white men designed for other people it it's just a new it sets up for failure. And I think Pruitt is a good example of people designing a building type they've never been in and probably wouldn't visit kind of sets it up for problems. True. True. But one of the funny
1: things about that comment is if you think about the fact that Yamasaki was leading the project, he he was not by any means a, a middle-class white person. He was a person who grew up in a kind of wood, yes. like a sort of wooden tenement in Seattle. So I think, you know, which, which exactly points to the kind of complexity of, of everything at hand. And, and you know, the other thing I think that's very important with Prudaga was it really became so infamous because of these photographs of it being demolished and because of the way that Charles Jenks wrote about them, but also how they appeared in films by Oscar Newman and Robert Hughes and uh, Philip Glass uh, uh, and... I can't remember the name of his collaborator on Koyan but there, yeah, it became these sort of images of the project really sealed the narrative. Um,
0: Yeah. And I do think it's worth mentioning. So it doesn't sound like I'm dismissing Yamasaki. Again, we kind of glossed over his background, but it's not true of every architect, but a lot of the architects, you know, we read about in school do have a somewhat privileged background. Whereas Yamasaki worked in a salmon cannery with some pretty horrific slave-like conditions. And I'll, I'll let anyone reading to see that, but I do think that's worth noting. Oh, no, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And I think that that, um, you know, one of the issues with the architecture as a profession is it remains, um, the educational threat threshold, the education required to become an architect is quite extensive, as you know, most of your listeners know, and it's often not, Cheap, so so that there is a tendency um, within the for the profession to attract you know people who can afford to go to school for that long and also know that they're not going to be paid as much when they get out of school and and so um, yeah I think there was there are certainly issues of race that informed Yamasaki's career but there are also issues of of class uh, I think that's undeniable
0: absolutely and so of course there's many other case studies that we just sadly won't be able to get to. But so I want to conclude with, you know, I always ask the guests, you know, what, what have they worked on since the book has come out? I know yours has uh, actually not come out yet, but when it, since it's been finished, you know, you hinted at that you used to do structural artwork in the book. You do hint at that you walked away from that for a little bit. So I guess the question I have is, you know, what have you worked on since you completed the book? That's an interesting question. I I think
1: I would rephrase it to be, what, what am I going to be working on? Because I've written this book really was, we just, we just finished it really um, in late May, but um, I'm working on another writing project and I'm also working on some, some art projects. They're both in the very early stages. So I don't have a great deal of information to divulge about them yet, but I'm just, I'm just now kind of getting back, back to work after finishing the book.
0: Okay, great. Well, I guess uh, when you're able to divulge, maybe we can talk about it then. Sure. Well, I want to I want to thank you very much for being on the show with me today. Thank you. And for all our listeners, the book is Sand Future comes out September 14th, and I want to thank everyone for listening and have a great day.